We have uh, another opportunity for you to hear another sermon today. Uh, at four in the afternoon, we actually have an ordination service here. Uh, we'll be ordaining Brett Weston, and uh, Brett will be joining the staff as an assistant pastor. Brett is our church planting resident, and uh, we actually have a goal in the next five years. We want to plant two more churches, and he would be the first of those two. So this is uh, a very important uh, uh, Brett and Aaron both, very important part of their preparing for that is to just be a part of this church and kind of learn its DNA and figure out what they would like to do and not like to do, similar to us. <laughs> There'll be some of both. And uh, so if you'd like to join us for that service, you can. And as I said, I'll be preaching another message. It's always a, you know, you don't want to miss that opportunity. <laughs> but uh, come join us at four if, if you can. We would love to have you. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we have the freedom and the opportunity to gather together with others in this place and to worship you. Remember who you are and, and to hear from you. And God, we very, very much want to hear from you. Uh, help us to listen well and, uh, and respond well to what you say. Uh, may you uh, inhabit the words that you've given me, Lord, and, and apply them and and use them uh, in ways that only your spirit can do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in a series looking at some of the uncertainties of life, particularly as those uncertainties relate to the issue of faith, faith in Jesus. And today I want to talk about what for many uh, causes a great deal of uncertainty. <clears throat> and that is the uncertainty surrounding the silence of God. Uh, those of us who follow Jesus, of course, live in the same world as those who don't, right? I mean, uh, we see the same good and the same bad things happen as those who do not follow Jesus. Most Jesus followers that I know are not experiencing visions, you know, from God every day or hearing God's voice speak to them, guide them, encourage them. And so they don't experience miracles happening in their lives every day. They're troubled by the same evils, frank, frank, uh, frankly, and the, the same uh, pains and the same suffering that those who don't follow Jesus sometimes experience. And uh, most Jesus followers that I know get disappointed in churches from time to time or disappointed in the people who attend those churches from time to time. And uh, yet they continue to follow a God that they cannot see, right? That they cannot touch. They cannot hear. They cannot prove using the scientific method. And as we've progressed in this series, my bias and my beliefs, I'm sure, are very, very uh, apparent. I happen to believe that trusting your life to God, staking literally everything on him, is the sanest, the most rational, the most joyous choice that a human being can make, as opposed to trusting your life and your future to the idea that God does not exist. Two options. But saying that means, uh, of course, that as followers of Jesus, we have to answer a few questions that admittedly are difficult to answer. Uh, these are questions that atheists and agnostics and skeptics often put to Christians. And I'm going to choose three and we're going to discuss them. Does that sound like a plan? Good, because that's what I've got. So the first one is this. If believing in Jesus, if believing in God is such a big deal to him, why doesn't God make himself more obvious to us? 
Why doesn't he just part the clouds, write his name in the sky? Why doesn't he give us more compelling proof, more compelling evidence in the fact that he does indeed exist? One of the most famous uh, atheists and skeptics uh, of the last 150 years is a guy that I've mentioned before, Bertrand Russell. And uh, when he was 90 years old, there's this famous incident. He was at a party and a woman engaged him in a conversation. She said, Mr. Russell, you're not only the probably the world's most famous atheist, you're now probably one of the world's oldest atheists and you're going to die soon. And uh, when you die, what if it turns out that God in fact exists? And his uh, response back to this woman, as I said, become famous. He says, I will point my finger at God and say, sir, you gave us insufficient evidence. Or rather, cocky response. But I wonder if some of you have felt that kind of thing before. Have you ever said to yourself, you know, why don't I ever get any burning bushes? How come there have been no Red Sea partings in my life? Or, you know, an occasional resurrection here or there. Or, you know, some really undeniably uh, healings, powerful healings. Uh, have you ever asked yourself that kind of a question? I bet many of us have. Most of us, maybe. But here's what's interesting to me. Not even those kinds of things, the wildly miraculous, you know, partings of the Red Sea, not even those kinds of things brought about universal belief for the people who witnessed them. Think about that. Israel remained very hard-hearted and unbelieving much of the time in the wilderness in spite of many miraculous uh, interventions. I mean, like manna showing up every day. They got used to that, took it for granted. Water coming out of a rock, ho-hum, you know. Uh, things like the parting of the Red Sea, uh, they, that happened to them. They got over it. Um, the quail, when they wanted meat, you know, God brought uh, tens of thousands, millions, I don't know, how, quail to them out in the middle of the wilderness so that they could, they could have meat. Um, they forgot about that very quickly. Uh, there are other examples, you know, Thomas, doubting Thomas. We talked about him a few weeks back. He and the other disciples doubted Jesus, had doubts about Jesus, even after the resurrection, we read. We saw last week what the Pharisees did with Jesus' miracles. Who did they attribute them to? Yeah, Satan, the evil one, the devil. It's just interesting. People who do not want to surrender themselves to God always find ways to explain God away. That's just kind of true. Uh, there's another a philosopher and atheist. His name is Norwood Russell Hansen. And um, he wrote this. He said, I'm not a stubborn guy. I would become a theist, a believer, if you will, uh, under some conditions. I'm open-minded, he declares. Suppose next Tuesday, just after breakfast, all of us in this one world are knocked to our knees by a percussive and ear-shattering thunderclap. The sky is ablaze with an eerie silvery light. And just then, as all the people of this world look up, the heavens open, the clouds part, revealing an unbelievably radiant and immense Zeus-like figure. And then he points down at me and explains for every man, woman, and child to hear, I've had quite enough of your too clever logic chopping and word watching in matters of theology. Be ashamed, Norwood Russell Hansen. I do most certainly exist. That's all he's asking. <laughs> but let's think about that for a minute. If that were to uh, actually happen, what would the response be? I mean, at first it would be a big shock to everybody, undoubtedly. But as time passed, I will bet you some of that shock would diminish, if not go away entirely, and that moment would fade. How do you think Norwood Russell Hansen would respond eventually, one year, two years, five years, or ten years down the road? I'm just guessing that over time he might say to himself, 
man, was that real or was that, maybe that was a hallucination. Maybe that's just a product of a vivid imagination, my imagination. Maybe that was just a strange dream or maybe it was some rare, bizarre, natural phenomenon never to be repeated again. But the point is, I bet he would eventually find a way to dismiss it because people have always been able to dismiss encounters with God when they don't want to surrender to him. The people of Israel encountered God over and over and over and over again. And shortly after each encounter, they would just forget and get right back to life as usual. And let's be honest, this is not just a problem for Israel. This is a problem for us. Same thing. Part of the reason for this, it's actually a deeply spiritual reason or issue. It's the condition of the human heart. You see, the human heart is not inclined in God's direction. So unless God does something to change the human heart, we human beings will always find alternative ways of explaining things without God. We will even forget miraculous encounters with God or we will interpret them away. In other words, we don't discern spiritual things, not naturally. Uh, Paul wrote about this. He wrote the church at Corinth and he said this. He said, the man without the spirit, that is the spirit of God, does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So spiritual things, truly spiritual, truly supernatural things are spiritually discerned. Um, A little thought experiment here, maybe kind of illustrate this. Imagine you're driving on the road and, and uh, you're just clipping along and all of a sudden you, are, you become aware that there's a police car nearby. Uh, you put the brakes on, you make sure you're going the speed limit. What's, what's going on there? Suddenly your concern for following the speed limit, your appreciation of the speed limit goes way, way up. Is that a change of heart for you? You have a new conviction um, not so much. What you're really doing is just, you're doing some pain avoidance. You don't want to get a ticket. And if that officer should pull you over because you were speeding, you may even momentarily nurse some pretty bad thoughts about that officer in your mind. You may be thinking, well, you know, there are murderers, there are thieves out there. They ought to be after those people. I'm an honest, you know, tax paying citizen. What are they doing? Are they just filling a quota and on and on and on the gears turn in your head? The point is this. You see, our own darkness and self-preoccupation inevitably presents us from seeing the officer objectively for who he or she really is. We don't really care who he or she really is. We're projecting onto them our own fears, our own assumptions, our own selfishness, our own brokenness, our own darkness. And all of that filters the way we perceive, the way we think about this officer. And this goes on all the time for us and affects, frankly, all of our relationships. We relate to each other this way through a lens. Um, So, you know, when it comes to seeing God and recognizing him for who he really is and what he really does, we are just incapable of it in our own sinful, fallen state. And this is even true of other creatures. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote these words to some uh, people who followed Jesus. He said, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. What he's saying is, is our lives have to line up with what we say we believe. The demons believe there is one God, good. They believe it and they shudder. Um, They don't believe that God is actually good. They don't believe that God is actually just. They don't believe that he is fair, that he is loving, at least not towards them, because they believe he is their enemy, you see. 
And so for all of us, the condition of our heart colors our capacity to perceive any being, especially God. Are you with me so far? Okay. Our hearts need to change before we can or will see God for who he really is. That's the point. We need a new heart. And that was precisely Israel's problem. It was always Israel's problem. It's the same problem that we experience today. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel was moved upon by God himself to say these words. This is God speaking. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Uh, when that happens in the life of a person, their heart is changed, spiritually speaking. And at a very fundamental, very deep level, so much so that now, whereas they didn't value God, now they value God. Uh, now they long to know him better. Now they've become interested in spiritual answers to difficult questions. They sense his love. They sense his call on his life, his presence in their life. They become sensitive to their own sin. They understand that only God can rescue them from the problem of their own brokenness. And slowly God comes to mean to them more than money, more than success, more than status, more than fame, more than security, more than anything, frankly. But those are desires that only God the Spirit can work in us. That's what he's always up to in our lives. When the Spirit does that, I see God and frankly, I see the whole of creation differently. And so the point is God is displaying his presence and his power to us every day in creation, uh, in personal salvation, in answered prayer, in all kinds of provision. We just don't see it, nor do we care to until we have new eyes to see and new hearts to care for him. Does that make sense? Okay, not so much. Uh, Romans 1, Paul writes about this. Paul actually reflects on this problem that we all have. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men. And there's the catcher who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's kind of true of all of us. We suppress the truth about God by our wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, Paul says, because God has made it plain to them. So there's a lot out there that's plain to us. Uh, having God write his name in the sky, we would actually find a way to explain that away. But, but what we should know about God has been made plain to us, we just suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That would be our answer to the, the, the first question. Ready for the second? Okay, here's the second question. If Christianity is true, why aren't Christians better advertisements? Have you ever wondered that? Yeah, it's a fair question. It really bothers a guy named Sam Harris, who is a, he's a neo-atheist in this recent movement of atheists have been writing a lot of books. And so, and he wrote a book called A Letter to a Christian Nation. It's very interesting. He argues that Christianity and religion actually pose the greatest single threat to human survival. That's what he poses in this book. And he cites things like the Crusades or the Inquisition or religious wars during the Reformation or religious wars in the British Isles or the Salem witch trials and things of that nature. He talks about how the Bible has been used historically to defend slavery, uh, to defend the subjugation of women, uh, to, to defend the divine right of kings. And he quotes uh, another uh, friend of his, Stephen Weinberg, an atheist who says, good people do good things and bad people do bad things. But to get good people to do bad things, that takes religion. Interesting observation. A little, uh, oh, pessimistic, I would say. Um, 
You know, and I think the place, though, to start here is to acknowledge that many horrible things have been done in the name of God. And worse, in the name of Jesus. All of us who are Christians ought to look at those things openly, honestly, humbly, and, and not get defensive, right? But be sorry that at times Christians have made terrible mistakes and argued for terrible things, things like slavery. Um, and, you know, also the other side of that coin is that some people who have, uh, they kind of have an historical ax to grind. And sometimes they exaggerate or they distort the facts um, to make Christianity or belief in God to look much worse than perhaps it actually is. But the Apostle Paul says judgment begins in the house of God. So let's examine ourselves. Let's own the truth and call it like it is. Some very bad things have been done in God's name and more specifically in Jesus' name. But that's not all there is to say on this subject. So we're not going to end the sermon yet. I think we also have to ask... Uh, were those events, were those atrocities, were those bad things that were done the outworking of Jesus' teaching? Or were they done actually in contradiction to it? A loaded question, but an important one. You know, Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus taught that we should bless those who persecute us. Jesus says, when somebody slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not understand what they are doing. So were things like the Crusades or the Inquisitions or things like slavery or the subjugation of women, were those things the outcome of his teachings or were they, again, the very contradiction of his teaching? I, I think the latter. Um, you also, I think, have to ask the, this question. Has the human race done better in societies that seek to eliminate faith altogether? Uh, has the experiment of atheism worked a lot better is another way of asking that question. You know, you don't have to dig very deeply to recognize that the greatest bloodbaths in the history of the human race have all appeared in the 20th century in countries that sought to eliminate God and worship and faith from the playing field. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, one time estimated that Stalin killed more than 35 million fellow countrymen. 35 million people who didn't get on board with the program. It's estimated that Mao Zedong killed 70 million. 70 million people who would not get on board with their program. It's estimated that Pol Pot in Cambodia, this was an atheist regime as well, killed over 20% of the country's entire population. A million and a half people. I think that evil on an international scale, things like terrorism, uh, things like oppression, things like genocide and such, exist not because of religious faith, not because of religious differences. I believe these things exist because of the darkness that resides inside every human heart. Therein lies the problem. I mean, think about the... So you, you remove all religion, no worship, no churches, no God, no faith, no belief in the afterlife. Would that remove the bulk of the darkness that we find in the hearts of human beings? Would it? I don't think so. Uh, last weekend was what? Mother's Day. Yeah, it was Mother's Day. So we had all of our grandkids over. You know what I noticed? I noticed that my grandkids can be cranky, stingy, selfish, obnoxiously loud, and messy little human beings, and they don't care. <laughs> they don't care one bit. 
Now, where did my grandkids learn that kind of behavior? From the in-laws. That's right. <laughs> no, obviously not. <laughs> obviously not. My in-laws might be here. So anyway, yeah. just kidding. Yeah. Here's the point. They didn't learn it at all. It's just natural to them to be that way. And the Bible is exactly correct, I think, when it describes the human heart as broken, as, as sinful. And not just other people's human hearts. It's, it's all human hearts. It's your heart, my heart. It's all of our hearts. So imagine a society with no religion, no faith, no God, no Jesus. It's been tried. Uh, do you want to tell me that in that kind of society, Nobody's going to covet someone else's money, someone else's house, someone else's spouse. Is that what you would tell me? I, I would challenge that. Do you want to tell me that in that society with no faith, no God, no Jesus, no religion of any kind, people of different skin tones, tribes, ethnic groups are just going to get along and love each other? I don't think so. Lots of evidence to the contrary. Don't tell me that just because religion is done away with, greedy people become generous. Or angry people become merciful. Or bitter people become grateful. I, I think actually that history would teach and bear out the argument that Christianity, maybe religion in general, but Christianity certain specifically, does more to correct these kinds of vices than it does to foster them. I think that's what the evidence would really point out. Now, has the church done that perfectly? No, 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 sad to say. Do we do it perfectly now? No, no, sad to say we don't. But I think still the case. Christianity does more to correct these vices than to foster them. Now, a more common objection to religion and to Christianity in particular is that people who practice it are hypocrites. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, probably so. And my short response to that one is, yeah, that's true. You are hypocrites. Me too. All of us. Uh, Jake and... Uh, you know, was saying, I think my, Tim might have mentioned it too. You know, we talk about being a church that is, we're, we're a community of people who aren't perfect and don't pretend to be. Well, that, that is a statement of, of who we want to be and who we hope to be. But even there, we're lying a little bit, aren't we? Aren't we? You, you get my point? Uh, you know, we, we do an awful lot of, of uh, pretending and an awful lot of, of, of hiding, you see, um, I fall short. Every time I get up here and talk about values of the faith or, or preach something, uh, I'm well aware of the fact that oftentimes I'm talking about something I'm failing at all too often. I don't want to fail at it. Uh, not at all. I don't mean to do that. Um, and, and yet that happens in me because I too am broken, uh, just like everybody else. I let people down. Once in a while, I'll get an email reminding me of that. Somebody's disappointed, I let them down, uh, I didn't do something they thought I should do, or I did something they thought I shouldn't, and you know, I, I can't deny it sometimes. Sometimes the expectations are wrong or out of adjustment, and I try to always tell myself that's the case, but sometimes it's just right. But here's the thing, as a follower of Jesus, Jesus has me in this remedial program that I'm in a, a part of every single day. It's called discipleship, and it's to help me become less and less and less of a hypocrite. But here's the thing. I'll never get out of this program, not this side of heaven. I'm going to always be in this program. 
And, uh, and here's the deal too. Think about this. The whole human population, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter what religion or no religion, doesn't matter what your beliefs are. The entire human population wrestles with the problem of not living up to their own standards, their own ideals, their own set of morals. This is just true of all human beings. It's part of the sinful human condition. We're posers. Just go look at your Facebook page. We're, we're hypocrites. We, uh, we do image management and spend control all the time. You can say that you have faith in God. You can say that you don't. But part of what Jesus taught is that this is the human condition. All of us are in the boat of hypocrites. Are you with me, fellow hypocrites? Yeah, now we don't celebrate that. That's not a good thing, but it happens to be the truth about all of us. And by the way, Jesus promised to his followers is not, hey, if you become one of my followers, I will make your life present. I'll get you that job you want. I'll get you that spouse you want. I'll give you great health all the time. No, no, no. His promise is that he will chip away at the sin and the selfishness and the hypocrisy in you and me, and he won't stop. That's his promise. So that one day, you and I, we can become good news to people who need good news. We can become living evidence of the fact that there is good news. You see, Jesus' plan to change the world has not, um, it was never to assemble a, a group of great debaters who could out-argue everybody else, right? That was never his plan. His plan is to create a community of people who actually build their lives on the presence on the power of God, you see. A presence that transforms us so much that we actually become good news to people everywhere. They get a glimpse of what it's like to be in Jesus. They get a glimpse of what it's like to live in Jesus' kingdom. They get a, a glimpse of a community that, that is tenacious about breaking down barriers, tenacious about resolving difficulties, tenacious about telling the truth, tenacious about being gracious toward one another and having generosity toward one another. And that, you see, then becomes a blessing to the world. That was Jesus' plan then. Guess what? It's still Jesus' plan today. That's what Deer Creek Church is a part of, that plan. Well, that's question number two. You're all hypocrites. Did you get that part? Okay, here's, uh, here's the third troubling question, and this is a huge one. In fact, Tim Keller says this is probably today the biggest question and the biggest problem for Christians and Christianity to have to wrestle with. Uh, I'll put it like this. Uh, here's the question. If there is really an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-good and competent God overseeing the universe, why is there so much evil and so much suffering and so much pain? You know, natural disasters happen, tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes, flooding, flooding that's going on right now back in the Midwest. There's things that we call accidents, things like car crashes or fires and people die or get hurt in these things. There's diseases, heart attacks, cancer, Alzheimer's, MS. A, a, a guy out front this morning who told me he just had suffered a stroke and you know, he was recovering from that and you know, just came out of the blue. Didn't see this coming at all. Steve Weinberg, that atheist I mentioned before says this, he says, the God of birds and trees, we all love God, you know, birds and trees, he says, would also have to be the God of birth defects and cancer. Interesting statement. But is it really true? Is that true? You know, um, somebody we've all read, Dostoevsky, uh, we all love Russian novelists and philosophers. Um, <laughs> Dostoevsky, who is a believer, right? 
Uh, it taps into the truth that we feel around that statement that Weinberg makes. Uh, Dostoevsky says this, the death of a single infant calls into question the existence of God. And what he's saying is, is that if you're the parent of that child who dies, it doesn't get more serious or more difficult than that. And it does call us up short and can cause us to question, where is God? Does he exist? Is he real? That's, that's all he's saying. And, you know, the other aspect of this that's somewhat sad, we all know um, that when people experience difficulty, pain, and suffering, the church hasn't always responded well in those situations. I mean, sometimes Christians will respond with bad or very glib kinds of answers. It's not helpful. Not at all. Sometimes we'll tell people that they suffer because there's sin in their life. Not, not very helpful sometimes. Uh, sometimes we'll tell people that they have not been delivered, you know, from this difficulty, from this hardship, from this disease, because they don't have enough faith. Not helpful. I would say also not true. Uh, sometimes preachers add to people's pain and suffering by making really stupid pronouncements about God's judgments. And, um, and, and when that happens, it, it hurts the reputation of Jesus it reflects badly on the church and it does damage to people, people receiving that kind of input. You know, but we do have this question, why is there this kind of pain and suffering and evil in the world? And part of the answer is we, we don't know why. I mean, right, we don't know why, especially as it pertains to why specific bad things happen to specific people. Then we really don't know why. And when we start to tell them why, we start to step out onto pretty thin ice. We just don't know. It's the problem of having very limited knowledge. It's the problem of being a human being and not being God. God knows. We don't. And we just have to accept that. I, I do find uh, this interesting, though, too, that, that some religions... Um, in, in some religions, evil and suffering are not even seen as a problem. Are you aware of this? I mean, take Hinduism, for example. Suffering is not a problem. It's the result of bad karma in your life. You're being paid back for what you did or didn't do in your previous life, you see. Um, so if you're suffering in this life, you're just working off bad choices, bad things that you did or good things that you didn't do. So it's not a problem. Suffering's not a problem. Pain's not a problem. Bad things happening to you is not a problem. It's just how the world works. What goes around comes around. Buddhism, on the other hand, very different view. It says that both suffering and pleasure and joy, all of those things are actually just an illusion. They're illusory. Uh, they are the result of human desires that, frankly, need to be conquered and extinguished. That's what that religion is all about. The goal of spiritual life is to eliminate desire, expectations, things of that nature of any kind. So the way you become immune to suffering or to evil or to pain, if you're a Buddhist, is you just accept it, whatever. Whatever is, is. You learn to eliminate your expectations for people to be good to you. Get rid of that idea. Eliminate your expectations for life to be fair or for pleasure to be present or for fairness to prevail or for justice to reign or for good to conquer evil. By doing so, that you become what they would call enlightened. You see the world for the way it really works and you lose those expectations and you learn to live with contentment in whatever. 
And I have to say that these kinds of approaches to this particular issue, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of pain, have never really been very satisfying to me. I don't find that very satisfying. I believe that fallen human beings have an enormous capacity to do evil to each other, bring terrible suffering one to another if we choose. Evil and suffering happen in the world because we are broken. We are not as we should be. I believe that God looks at all this evil and it means to fix it completely, absolutely one day. I believe that the message of the cross is that God has chosen to take the full weight of human pain, human suffering, human evil on himself. I believe that Jesus introduced to us, to the human race for the first time, this idea of a God who suffers suffers for us. This is something the world had never thought of before. Now, I don't know the answer as to why particular suffering or evil happens to a particular person, but I accept Jesus' teaching that one day evil and suffering will end, all of it will end, because you see, his kingdom will come in all its fullness, and Jesus will reign. That's the day we long for. That's the end game of the thing we call the gospel, the good news. And I must say that I am struck by the consequences of the alternative possibility, namely that, namely that if there is no God, then think about it, then there certainly is no redemptive story, no redemptive story of any kind. And so yes, we who follow Jesus struggle with what we might call the painful silence of God. Sometimes we wonder why he's not speaking, why he's not working, or at least that's the way it seems to us. And we ask those difficult questions. At times we face certain particular difficulties or hardships or trials, or we look at certain disasters happening and it feels like a, 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 a painful disconnect, a painful silence. Where is God in this? But think about the painful silence of atheism or the painful silence of there being no God. I would submit to you that that silence is far worse. That silence is a silence which says, what is just is, period. So don't expect any answers or any meaning or any purpose to it all. Don't expect there to be a fix someday. Uh, Richard Dawkins, a neo-atheist, uh, wrote these words. He said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, the suffering that you see in the world, well, that's what you should expect. Because there is no purpose, there is no meaning. There's just blind, pitiless indifference. That's the atheist point of view. Your suffering, the evil in the world just is. So shut up and quit whining, I would add. Stop thinking it should be different. And that's an interesting thing. Why do we think that? You know, you have two alternatives, really, as we process this. One says this, you're a product of causes that have no purpose, no meaning. Your origin, that is where you came from, your growth, your hopes, your fears, your loves, your beliefs are the outcome of just an accidental collection of atoms, really. No heroism or intensity of thought or feeling can preserve your life from beyond the grave. All the devotion, all the inspiration, all the labors of all the ages are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system when, when it all ends, you see. 
The whole temple of human achievement must inevitably be buried in the debris of a universe in ruins. That's what we're all headed for, says the atheist. You have another view. Dallas Willard, somebody who I really appreciate and have loved his writings over the years, unfortunately passed away a little over a year ago. He, he says this, and I love the way he expresses this. He says, this is what he says about you and me. He says, you are the uniquely designed creation of a thoroughly good and unspeakably creative God. You are made in his image with a capacity to reason, to choose, to love that sets you above all other life forms. God's aim in human history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. He is even now at work to bring this about. That's what's going on ever since Jesus came. You have been invited at great cost to God himself to be a part of this radiant community. You, right there in your life, you will not only survive death, you yourself were made to bear an eternal weight of glory. You cannot now even fathom and you will one day know. Woo, yeah, isn't that awesome? I love that, yeah. So you see, there's a difference between these views. And we each have to decide what we believe or what we put our trust in. And to be fair here, the mere fact that atheism might be depressing doesn't for a second mean it's not true, right? Now, if it is true, we ought to own it. Just own it and get on with life accordingly. But here's what's interesting to me. Yes, we all have this sense that life is hard. We all have this sense that people suffer. We all have this sense that things are bad, sometimes in our lives, sometimes in the lives of others. But what's interesting is that we also have this sense that things are not supposed to be this way. Where does that sense come from? You know, children are not supposed to grow up with nobody caring about them or nobody worrying about their education, their health, or their well-being. Women are not supposed to be abused. Dads and moms and children are not supposed to die of cancer at an early age. But if the universe is a machine, if it's just a giant accident, if it's, a, if it's an indifferent conglomeration of energies and forces and atoms and things of that nature, where did we get the idea that there is this way that things ought to be? Where does that come from? You see, Jesus said, we have that idea because there is a way that things are supposed to be. And it's beautiful and it's glorious. It's beyond imagining. The old, uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew prophets had a word for describing this. It was the word shalom. And it was the idea that, that one day there would come this peace of God, this shalom of God, where everything functioned exactly the way it was supposed to function. And human hearts were were functioning exactly the way they were supposed to function and society functioned exactly the way it's supposed to function. And it will be glorious. It will be wonderful. It will be shalom. And the Bible says our hunger for that is not something programmed into us by natural selection. It is something in us that remembers our maker, our creator, remembers what perfect relationships with him is like and remembers a better time and a better place and just longs for that again, you see. Friends, I don't think an atheistic, secular, materialistic view of the world makes much sense at all, especially when it comes to understanding human beings. 
You know, we have so many longings and so many desires, so many hopes, so many dreams, so many loves, so many disappointments. But I think Jesus does make sense of those things. I think God makes perfect sense of those things. I think the Bible makes sense of those things. And Jesus and God and the Bible tell us that things like pain and suffering and evil are not meant to be, are not meant to last. Jesus came to do something about all that kind of stuff, suffering, pain, difficulty, hardship, brokenness. That is why he came. And that, that is why we can trust him. That is frankly why we must. The great hope of anyone who follows Jesus, it's really beautifully pictured in the book of Acts, the first chapter of Acts. All that was an introduction, and I'm ready now to start into teaching this text. Uh, you know, this is after the resurrection. And um, it says, after his suffering, Jesus is speaking about, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Because they had difficulty believing it. Would you? Of course you would. I would too. Be like, what do you mean he's alive? But he showed many convincing proofs to them. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Why would he spend his time talking about the kingdom of God? Because that's what our hearts desire. We desire that community that's perfect. We desire that shalom that we don't have. This is what we long for, friends. And that's what he talked about, the kingdom of God. And he said to them, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I got a job for you, okay? He's been talking about his kingdom and in that context, I got a job for you. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. I don't know what that looked like. Whoop, I don't know, but you know, it, was, it had to be cool. <laughs> it had to be cool, right? And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Who are the two men dressed in white? Yeah, they're angels. Yeah. And it says, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? What do you mean? What else should I be doing? This is pretty amazing. But you know, that's the question. The point is, there's something for you to do. And he says, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, here you go, here it is, friends. Here's the good news. Here's the kingdom news. Will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Boom. I mean, that's the one great confidence, you see, we have. I mean, we believe in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But you know what? It doesn't matter if he's not coming back. But he is. Shalom is coming. Jesus is coming. He's going to fix it. He's going to make it right. He's going to make you right. He's going to make me right. And we get a taste of that now. It's part of being in the church. It's part of him working on us. It's part of him changing. We get a taste of that now. A good taste. It's not a complete taste. We experience the kingdom of Jesus now in part, but in the future in full. And uh, that's what we look forward to. Uh, that's how the Christian, I think, should look at suffering and pain and hardship and difficulty. Let me pray. 
Father, as we look at questions like this, as we wrestle with problems of uncertainty and difficulties with our faith, we thank you, God, that there is light to shed on these things. We thank you that we, we have teaching, we have truth, we have uh, some understanding that helps us to wrap our, our hearts and our minds around these things and, and give answers, even though, God, we don't pretend to have perfect answers and we don't pretend to have answers for every question. But we are so thankful that when Jesus was here living among us, he pointed out the fact that he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. And we can say, Father, unequivocally that we have found that to be true. We live in that truth. Thank you for meeting with us here this morning, God. Receive our worship and song for we ask it in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.